I'm going to talk today about five poets. Tom Gunn, Geoffrey Hill, Ted Hughes, Sylvia Plath and Peter Porter. And I'm also going to talk about someone who was at one time a very influential critic and editor, and that's A. Alvarez, or as he's now tends to be known, Al Alvarez. And also about a poetic taste in poetry, sensibility, a sort of emotional climate that got going in the 1950s and which began to disappear in the 1970s, although its consequences can be still traced in the decades since. It's associated with a particular generation of poets, Gunn, Hill, Hughes, Blath and Porter, but uh, also other poets who came to prominence at the same time, many of whose names appear in Alvarez's 1962 anthology, The New Poetry, and its revised and expanded 1966 edition. I see someone down there even has a, even has a copy of the revised one. The revised one has that Jackson Pollock uh, picture on, on the front. The, the original is, is sort of uh, geometric and, uh, with um, sort of red and white. Um, anyway, it's, this, it's, so it's the generation that came after the movement. And the movement were, if you recall, uh, poets such as Kingsley Amis, Philip Larkin, the poet critic Donald Davy, Elizabeth Jennings, and their calling card, the uh, defining anthology, was Robert Conquest's uh, 1956 New Lines. Uh, it so happens that Tom Gunn uh, is there too, uh, but he's represented by a very different sorts of poems and a different side to his sensibility from the sort of poems by Gunn that were going to turn up in the new poetry. So he's perhaps a bit half and half. Uh, so what's the difference? As uh, Ted Hughes puts it in an interview, one of the things the New Lines poets had in common was the post-war mood of having had enough, enough rhetoric, enough overweening push of any kind, enough of the dark gods, enough of the id, enough of the angelic powers and the heroic efforts to make new worlds. The Second War set them dead against negotiation with anything outside the coziest arrangement of society. They wanted it cozy. Now, I came a bit later. I hadn't had enough. I was, for, was all for opening negotiations with whatever happened to be out there. This was a feeling common to many in Hughes' generation, but it evolved and was explained and justified uh, to something more than just a feeling. When Alvarez comes along, that feeling gets argued for with some quite sophisticated criticism, which draws on various uh, other critics and thinkers of the time, from F.R. Leavis, who, if you were studying at university or even school at the time, was the critic everybody in this country was reading, to Hannah Arendt uh, or Bruno, uh, to also Bruno Bettelheim. And so a diagnosis of the problems facing the artists and society. As someone who writes both poetry and criticism myself, and who's written a lot of book reviews in his time, um, 
this interplay between poetry and evaluative criticism, which, though it's looked down on by many academics uh, these days, is the sort of criticism I tend to like, criticism where critics say why they value um, some piece of writing or don't value it. Uh, this interplay between poetry uh, and criticism was one which had a definite attraction. But then, in this case, it's also one with pitfalls. Doing justice to Ted Hughes for Alvarez meant doing down Philip Larkin. What happens if you, like me, happen to like Ted Hughes and Philip Larkin, but also have problems with Ted Hughes and Philip Larkin? Um, so uh, writing the Alvarez generation was a good chance to think about poetry's relation to evaluative criticism. How is it helpful? When does it go too far? And what's its relationship to the actual writing of poetry? So there are all sorts of good uh, critical literary historical reasons for my writing the Alvarez generation. However, if I'm honest, I got the idea to write the book because I was researching the editorial files of Penguin Books. And I was looking at the really extensive poetry list uh, they had at the, uh, back in the 1960s when there was a poetry boom. Uh, there was the new poetry, which was a bestseller and sold more than 100,000 copies. There was the Penguin Modern Poets list, which uh, some of you may recall. And that was launched on the same day as the new poetry. A little later, there were the Penguin Modern European Poets, edited by Alvarez. Um, and looking at these books and their files and at these early 60s poets, I was having that sensation of the past being another country, but also finding that poets, I suppose I thought I had placed, whether it would be uh, Geoffrey Hill or Ted Hughes, Sylvia Plath, um, seeming completely at home in this country, well, I was in need of a good guidebook and a few phrases. So I started to talk to people. I talked uh, quite a lot on and off the record to the late Peter Porter, whose career was basically launched by Penguin Modern Poets too and who was in the second edition of the New Poetry. And he had an incredibly detailed memory, whereas uh, other people tended to, be, uh, tended to get quite hazy. He remembered everything, absolute grain, uh, grains of um, the tiniest piece of sand. Um, so he, he was very, uh, very helpful. And he had lots of quite sharp, but also wise things to say about his contemporaries. Uh, later on, I had long conversations with Alan Brown, John, and Edward Lucy Smith, who, like uh, Porter, were members of the group, which um, was essentially Britain's first poetry workshop. And they, too, fleshed out uh, detail of a wider poetic culture that was going on in the 1950s and 1960s and what people were up to and how they felt. But the moment I started to realise uh, what sort of book I ought to be writing, uh, or at least started with, with the first time I met and interviewed Al Alvarez. Now, when I interviewed him... I hadn't decided what sort of book I was going to write about all this stuff. So I was really just asking him about penguin books and uh, the modern, uh, modern European poetry uh, uh, tree lists he had an involvement with, with and so on. Anyway, I went to his house, uh, which used to be in Flask Walk in Hampstead. He's actually moved a bit, but uh, it was in Flask Walk. And I rang the bell and um, we went upstairs to his study and... It's an amazing study. It's like Freud's 
so there were all these huge masks and so on, and I was quite nervous. <laughs> um, but he was very friendly. Um, and being nervous, I had it in my head, for some reason, I'm not uh, quite sure why, apart from just being uh, nervous, that he wouldn't want to talk about Sylvia Plath, because I thought, everybody asks Al Alvarez about Sylvia Plath, so I won't ask him about Sylvia Plath, apart from really boring quest questions that I sort of ask about anyone else he, he was dealing with. Um, the rest of the talk went well, and I got all sorts of information about editorial processes in the 1960s and his lessons on. Uh, but when we popped downstairs to have a, a cup of tea, the conversation got a little freer, and he said, uh, one thing he didn't ask me about was Sylvia Plath, um, uh, and, and, and about her connection to the new poetry. And his voice sort of changed, and he looked, grew more, inten more intense, as if he was now something, saying something that really mattered. Uh, and this is what he said. Uh, but the introduction to the new poetry really rang a bell for Sylvia. She was very disappointed not to be included, and we talked about it. As we talked about, uh, 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 about it, because um, uh, it was just after it came out, and she and Ted had split up. I think that she felt that somebody, uh, somebody it, it was very soon after Life Studies came out, which was a hugely influential moment in poetry, much like The Wasteland was when it came out 40 years before. Uh, but the combination of Life Studies and my fighting introduction, I felt she probably took as a bit of a relief as someone was making a case for what she wanted to do. We talked about it a great deal, she and I. And then she started to coming to read poetry to me and sent poetry to me all the time and I got her published in The Observer when no one else would publish her. So I think that book was helpful to her. And of course, when the second edition came out, it was just after she had died and she featured very largely in it. I went away and I wondered, is this true? Did the introduction to the new poetry really ring a bell for Sylvia Plath? Because if it did... The New Poetry wasn't just a book which collected young poets of its time and which promoted some of them, Sylvia Plath amongst them. It was a book which had an important influence upon at least one of the most significant poets in its pages. And the more I looked at the New Poetry in its introduction and the more I looked at Sylvia Plath's poems, the more I decided that, yes, it had. As I set about chronicling that, it became part of a larger story which led me backwards and forwards in time. I had to explain, how was it that Al Alvarez came to produce an anthology like The New Poetry? What was happening in uh, poetry at the time? What was happening in criticism to bring this about? But there was also the story of what happened next um, uh, to the once uh, very high-profile way Alvarez was writing and broadcasting about Plath and Hughes and other poets of the times in the years following, and right up to his 1971 study of suicide, The Savage God. How did an interest in modern poetry end up with an interest in suicide? An interest for which Alvarez has frequently been attacked. Uh, John Fuller famously, and this was uh, quoted in... Uh, uh, the Motion Morrison Penguin Book of British Poetry, so the successor to the new poetry. Uh, John Fuller attacks Alvarez by saying, he tells you in the somberest notes, if poets want to get their oats, the first step is to slit their throats. 
The way to divide the sheep of poetry from the goats is suicide. Um, so I began to fit all these parts together uh, and did so with what I was hearing from Porter and other people, um, um, what I was finding when I was reading their work. And suddenly it became clear to me that I now had the guidebooks and phrasebooks to this foreign country and could more or less understand what people had been talking about and what these poets were doing there. There was this climate of poetry that evolved pretty much independently of Alvarez, but which he then commented on and in so doing affected. Poets who in some ways are very different were showing real family resemblances and taking part in the same conversation. One poem could seem to answer or be in competition with another. The critics weren't just writing about the poets. The poets were writing about the critics. I thus had a story uh, going from Tom Gunn's first book, Fighting Terms, which was published in 1954 while he was still an undergraduate, through the first collections of Gunn, Hill, Hughes and Porter, through Platt's Ariel and on to uh, Hill's King Log and Hughes's Crow, and then on to uh, Peter Porter's great elegiac collection of 1978, The Cost of Seriousness, which in its way is the last and most powerful answer to Alvarez's call for a new seriousness in the new poetry. And I had postscripts to the style too, in looks at how Ted Hughes's, birth, uh, Hughes's birthday letters and the late works of Tom Gunn and Geoffrey Hill revisit their earlier style themselves and how later poetry anthologies have sought to emulate or distance themselves from the new poetry. So what I'm going to do for the rest of my talk is give you a bit of a flavour of the book. I begin in Oxford and Cambridge in the early 50s. This is important uh, not just because this is when some of these poets started to write their first, uh, uh, the first works we remember them for, but because the experience of being at university had an important shaping effect. Gunn, Hill, Plath and Hughes, uh, though Hughes switched to anthropology in his last year, all studied English literature at Oxford or Cambridge. Studying English literature at the time had a particular flavour, especially at Cambridge, where F.R. Leavis and Q.D. Leavis were a dominant uh, force and at the time seemed hugely exciting to some of their students. I think this gets forgotten. When I was taught uh, English literature, the idea of F.R. Leavis was the most boring person you could possibly think of because all the, you know, all the old farts who taught the people who were teaching me had liked F.R. Leavis. But um, actually... Uh, in, the 19, in the 1950s, if you were young, he seemed very, very exciting, or could do, uh, because literature in the view of um, Queenie Leavis and F.R. Uh, 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 Leavis, um, it really mattered. It was something you had to be serious about. Uh, Leavis made it uh, possible to believe that the proper uh, reading of literature was, or at least could be, dynamic action. Gunn later said of Leavis, 
He had a very interesting view of literature, seeing it as a part of life. That was what was so wonderful. Literature is not like a fine wine that you taste and judge by comparison with other wines. You compare a book to a person, for example, or to an action. The passivity of tasting is dropped for doing. The appeal of literature is not merely literary, but judged by action and felt life. You can see why it's going to be, it, it was in, intoxicating. Uh, it, it, it's now, uh, I mean, once again, it's, it's often can be quite divorced from daily life. But here, it seemed to be the most important thing. Why would you study anything else if you're, you're being told if you're uh, uh, taught by Levis? Uh, partly under Levis's influence, Gunn made English uh, and poetry suddenly seem an activity for tough guys. N never so much uh, than uh, his, uh, his early poem, A Mirror for Poets. I'll quote you the first two stanzas. It was a violent time. Wheels, racks and fires in every writer's mouth and not mere rant. Certain shrewd herdsmen between twisted wires of penalty folding the realm were thanked for organizing spies and secret police by richness in the flock which they could fleece. Hacks in the fleet and nobles in the tower, Shakespeare must keep the peace, and Johnson's thumb be branded for manslaughter. To the power of irons, the admired Southampton's power was come. Above all swayed the diseased and doubtful queen, her state canopied by the glamour of pain. There's Inglet for you. Exciting, tough. Young, of course, very much young man's poetry and young men at a particular time. Peered into, Gunn's Mirror seems to reflect back poets not so much of another age as of another place. Spies and secret police. Torture the horrid attractiveness of the violent despot, her state canopied by the glamour of pain. The twisted wires folding this flock seem snipped from the Iron Curtain. The totalitarian, the totalitarian state of Elizabeth presented in terms of the dictatorships of the 1930s and 40s or of the Eastern Bloc of the 1950s. At the same time, state violence is met by resistant personal violence, and this is connected to poetic vitality. Rather than the impersonally elegiac uh, late uh, 40s ma manner or the calm good sense and diminished realism that would become associated with the movement, Gunn offered a way in which young poets whose experience of national service would for the most part have been, like Gunn's, inactive, if not tedious, could turn their university studies into vigorous, threatening activity. And as Gunn goes on to write about motorcycle gangs and so forth, he's bringing that view of the past into the present. As someone who wrote terrible poems as an undergraduate, the brilliance of Gunn's fighting terms always irks me a little. But at least I can console myself that having done his national service first, Gunn was a couple of years older than I was. Over at Oxford, aged about 18, Geoffrey Hill rolled up at the Poetry Society 
reciting Genesis. Against the burly air I strode, where the tight ocean heaves its load, crying the miracles of God. And first I brought the sea to bear upon the dead weight of the land, and the waves flourished at my prayer. The rivers spawned their sand. And where the streams were salt and full, the tough pig-headed salmon strove, curving the ebb and the tides pull to reach the steady hills above. And so it went on. I remember um, talking to someone who was there. And this went, amazing. This quiet little 18-year-old undergraduate suddenly blew away the poetry society. Um, when two, uh, two or three years later, and mercifully after uh, graduation, Hughes gets going, the air and animals are similarly tough and burly, and there is a similar bodily striving against resistant elements. Um, if you uh, remember the title poem of Ted Hughes's first collection, it begins... Uh, this is the hawk in the rain. Um, I drown in the drumming plowland. I drag up heel after heel from the swallowing of the earth's mouth, from clay that clutches my each step to the ankle with the habit of the dogged grave. But the hawk effortlessly at height hangs his still eye. His wings hold all creation in a weightless quiet, steady as a hallucination in the streaming air, while banging wind kills these stubborn hedges, thumbs my eyes, throws my breath, tackles my heart. Uh, now, these poets often do read one another's work and try to outdo it, and I'll give you an example of that in a moment, but I don't think that's what's going on here. Hughes may well not even have read Genesis, but he like Hill, has read Dylan Thomas. Over St. John's Hill, the hawk of fire hangs still, and it has uh, banging wind kills these stubborn hedges, thumbs my eyes. Um, and it, uh, both of them well know the wrangling hedges and the hawk on fire, the halter height over towy fins and a whack of wind. Uh, one of the differences between Hill and Hughes and the movement is that they haven't turned their back on Dylan Thomas. And they haven't turned their back on the poetry of the 1940s more generally either. Uh, they're combining it with a new physicality, which is partly to do with the sort of thing they were being encouraged to find in F.R. Levis' style uh, close readings of poetry. There's always, there was very much an encouragement to, to look at you know, how language is active and so on. Um, uh, though Gunn doesn't uh, sound like Dylan Thomas, um, he, uh, Hughes uh, uh, has plenty in common with him also. Uh, sorry, has in common with Gunn, rather than... Uh, uh, there is the con uh, controversial fascination with violence and the will uh, that both have um, guns, bikers and soldiers, Hughes as animals. They also share an in, uh, interest in pain and the past. Uh, the agony of the time is that there is no agony, Tom Gunn told the London Magazine in 1957. The National Health Service 
the welfare state had put pay to that. Tudor England, though, had plenty of agony, as you can see in A Mirror for Poets, or indeed Ted Hughes's The Martyrdom of Bishop Farrer. Bloody Mary's venomous flames can curl. They can shrivel sinew and char bone of foot, ankle, knee and thigh and boil bowels and drop his heart a cinder down. And her soldiers can cry as they hurl logs in the red rush. This is her sermon. The sullen-jowled, watching Welsh townspeople hear him crack in the fire's mouth. They see what black, oozing twist of stuff bubbles the smell that tars and wretches their lungs. No pulpit of, pulpit of his ever held their eyes so still, never as now his agony, his wit. The martyrdom, the martyrdom of Brit Bishop Farrer glories in a transfiguration through which the body is literally tongued with fire. Words are enacted in flesh. Bloody Mary's burning of Farrah is her sermon, insisting no less than guns a mirror for poets that words here are not mere rant. Hughes's poem has smoke burn Farrah's sermons into the skies. The martyrdom of Bishop Farrah keeps its historical distance. It is concerned with the particularities of the martyrdom of Farrah. The words of absolute sincerity are Farrah's, not Hughes's. So, strictly speaking, the poetics of sincerity has overtaken neither dramatic context nor a poetics of impersonality, which, on the authority of T.S. Eliot, was very much the doctrine of the time. Nor is the poem itself a sermon. While acknowledging this, it is nonetheless possible to find this a scenario, scenario which differs from those prevailing in the poetry of the time of its composition. In the martyrdom of Bishop Farrer, sincerity, extreme suffering, and extreme death intersect. Starkly clear for the first time is a dynamic that would be used by a number of the most striking poems from Hughes's generation. It's there, for instance, uh, in Lady Lazarus by Sylvia Plath. It's uh, there uh, when um, Offer in the 18th of um, Geoffrey Hill's Mercian Hymns watches how flesh leaked rennet over them, the men stooped disentangled the body. The Martyrdom of Bishop Farrow was straight away an iconic poem for other poets of Hughes's generation. After leaving Cambridge, Hughes had briefly attended Philip Hobsbawm's poetry workshop, The Group, when it formed in 1955, and carried on sending them poems for discussion after he left for the United States. Um, and this poem is slightly different from a poetry workshop now, but it's, it's a cross between a poetry workshop and a tutorial run by F.R. Leavis. But they're all bringing their poems in um, for discussion. And early members included Edward Lucy Smith, George Macbeth, Martin Bell, Peter Redgrove, uh, Alan Brangen, and there were others as well. And while some of these names have faded somewhat, in the 1960s, uh, they were fairly high profile. Uh, joining shortly after Hughes, there was the Australian poet Peter Porter. Now, Porter, 
liked W.H. Auden and did not like F.R. Leavis. Uh, of Leavis's favorite modern writer, D.H. Lawrence, he once said, I would rather spend a winter, uh, winter in a canning factory in Narvik than have to read Women in Love again. <laughs> Nevertheless, um, Porter found himself in the com company of these, uh, rather pr uh, these young Oxbridge poets and at once entering into their world and preoccupations and looking at them with a wary eye. That Porter didn't care for gun was okay. Uh, Hobsbawm didn't like gun, really. Um, but Hughes uh, was different. It was apparent to me when at first I, uh, I joined, said Porter, that to see Hughes as an already mature and original poet was an article of faith demanded of all group members. And indeed, group members used to like declaiming the martyrdom of Bishop Farrer at other people's poetry readings, finding uh, its disgusting uh, content a good uh, way of winding up the poets there. Uh, now, if you look at Porter's poem, The Historians Call Up Pain, it's in dialogue with The Mirror for Poets, uh, which in a stanza I didn't quote states, yet the historians tell us life meant less. It was a violent time and evil smelling. It is also in competition with the martyrdom of Bishop Farrer, uh, but rather than one Protestant martyr, Porter's poem has 10,000 Protestant martyrs. But if it, uh, it is, I think, also preoccupied with the glamour of past pain, it also tries to ironise and situate this preoccupation. You can hear Porter's thinking through his different, uh, differing views and feelings at the end of the poem. Yet, if we keep our minds on the four last things and join the historians on their freeze of pain... We may forget our world of milk garned stale, cancer touches in the afternoons, girls in Jensen's, gramophone records scratched and warped, managers fattening tumours of ambition. We cannot know what John of Leiden felt under the bishop's tongs. We can only walk in temperate London, our educated city, wishing to cry as freely as they did who died in the age of faith. We have our loneliness and our regret with which to build an eschatology. Porter once said that one of the reasons Alvarez was influential was that he codified what a lot of people had been thinking anyway. Well, I'm not sure about a lot of people, but it certainly codified what uh, a high proportion of the poets in the group had been thinking about. Uh, from 1959 on, Porter and the group had been influenced by the confessional poetry uh, of life studies by Robert Lowell. You have uh, Al Alvarez talking about life studies uh, earlier. This is a defining book for that generation. Um, and um, uh, it's also defining for Sylvia Plath, who would move to uh, England in um, December 1959 and then begin joining in the poetry scene. She she actually sort of auditioned for, for the group, uh, and she only wasn't in the group because uh, she, uh, she was, she, um, he was shown Plath's poems by Hobbs, uh, Hobbs, sorry, Hobbsbaum was shown Plath's poems by Hughes, and he basically turned her down for, for the group, which seems b bizarre. 
presumably um, he was just it was just being sexist because I can't given the sort of given the sort of people that they were letting into the group, it's utterly bizarre. But anyway, she was nearly in the group but but wasn't. Um, but uh, the group they were ungenteel. They were writing about the nuclear bomb, about Nazi Germany and the Holocaust. Independently up in Leeds, Geoffrey Hill was also penning a less genteel, more disturbing poetry. And in his more academic, more ethically careful way, he too was writing about the Second World War and the Holocaust. Uh, so you could just say then that Alvarez's new poetry, when it came along, really was just a packaging of a new taste in poetry. Um, but it was a very particular take. I won't go into the details now. And it was a very forcefully written one. And it was read very attentively by Sylvia Plath. When I wrote the book, I didn't have access to Sylvia Plath's edition of the new poetry. Indeed, I didn't know whether it still existed. But uh, last year, it went up for sale at the, uh, the auction house Bonhams. And the catalogue tells us that she has underlined or starred 20 passages in the introduction, including such lines as, the poet's ability and willingness to face the full range of his experience with full intelligence, not to take the easy exits, and praise um, and praise for Lowell and Berryman for their ability to deal openly with the quick of their experience, experience sometimes on the edge of disintegration and breakdown. Now, I couldn't afford to bid for it myself, but for those interested, it went for £6,870, which isn't bad for an old, peng old penguin paperback. By the way, if anyone bought it, I'd love to see it. <laughs> In her interview with Peter Orr uh, of the 30th of October, 1962, Plass says that uh, English poetry is in a bit of a straitjacket, a phrase that implies both formal and social constraint. In the next comment, she explains, there was an essay by Alvarez, the British critic. His arguments about the dangers of gentility in England are very pertinent, very true. I must say that I am not very genteel, and I feel that gentility has a stranglehold. The neatness, the wonderful tidiness, which is so evident everywhere in England, is perhaps more dangerous than it would appear on the surface. That is, the English poets of the movement, the context strongly implies that, that's she, who she's got in mind, have brought uh, together formal neatness and social nicety. Their poetry exists in the same restrictive clothing, the straitjacket, that is used to restrain those deemed dangerous through mental illness. The further use of the term stranglehold suggests that with formal constraint comes the uh, restraining of personal violence by institutional societal force. Plath believes that Alvarez has got it right in Beyond the Gentility Principle, the introduction to the new poetry. So what metaphorical language can he supply as an alternative? In Alvarez's introductory essay, he writes, where once Lowell tried to externalize his disturbances theologically in Catholicism and rhetorically in certain mannerisms of language and rhythm, he is now, I think, trying to cope with them nakedly and without evasion. But to walk naked is, of course, no guarantee of achievement in the arts, often the contrary. As Alvarez seeks to describe Lowell's change of style, the approbatory uh, metaphors switch too, um, to a, a divesting of the external clothing of language, its mannerisms and rhythms. Nevertheless, walking naked is itself an occasion of anxiety, since discipline and so forth are still required. Hankered after is an unattainable ideal. 
the ability both to be and not to be naked. That same mixture of endorsement and worry about what walking naked in poetry might mean is there in Plath. The poems will knowingly take the reader toward nakedness. Yet even as Plath reveals, she withholds a moment where that nakedness could be simply seen and recognised, from the concealing smoke scarves of the bee-meeting to the stripped tees to the bone and then to nothing in Lady Lazarus, the clothes are always coming off. Yet even when one sees the skin, the process of stripping does not necessarily stop. Nakedness is externalised in the nude verdigree uh, uh, of the condor in Death, uh, Death & Co. It becomes wholly human in shape, but wholly inanimate in the naked leaning of the Munich mannequins. Such examples point to the end of a logic implicit in the talk of nakedness in poetry. If rhetoric, language and rhythm as clothing have a new alternative in poetic nakedness, the words on the page must now reveal the naked self, concealing no true self that lies beyond them. That is all there is. The line between artifice and natural life has been erased. As a result of his journalistic advocacy of Hughes's work, Alvarez had become Hughes's friend and had got to know Plath a little over the preceding two years. Alvarez met Plath again in June 1962, and on the 21st of July, she sent him the poem's event and the rabbit catcher. By this stage, Plath must uh, already have known the new poetry, but its influence becomes clearly discernible only after Plath began uh, meeting Alvarez and uh, reading him her poems upon her London visits, the first of these being on the 25th to 26th of October. The weekend Plath met or she also met Alvarez. In the interview with Peter Orr, Plath states that a poet should be able to control and manipulate experiences, even such terrifying experiences as madness being tortured, doing so with an informed and intelligent mind, and that this should not be a narcissistic experience, but generally relevant to bigger things such as Hiroshima and Dachau. This is pure beyond the gentility principle, and the result of causal influence, not merely the result of coincidence in the outlooks of two writers. Answering set questions from the London magazine, touching upon the same uh, topics earlier that year, Plath's views may appear similar, but they are less developed. Plath is preoccupied by the genetic effects of fallout and big uh, business and the military in America, Yet this influences her poetry in a sidelong fashion, her poems turning out not to be about Hiroshima, but, by, but about a child forming finger by finger, not about mass extinction, but about a moon over a yew tree. Plath reckons her poems are deflections from some, such issues, but not, she trusts, an avoidance. The earlier response has Plath tentative about how directly relevant the poems are to the political world and mass trauma, and about the extent, extent to which they express it. Come the October interview, the correlation between personal experience and mass trauma is exact. The material handled, extreme personal experiences match up to the world. Between these two interviews, of course, came new poems. The October voice is of a poet no longer feeling her way towards handling such matters. It is the voice of one deploying them with confidence. 
Poems Platt could cite to back this up, such as Daddy, Feeble 103 Degrees, Lady Lazarus, had been written that October. That is, in the very month uh, since she uh, first read her poems to Alvarez and was preparing to visit him again. Uh, uh, and the month of excited mentions in her letters of his interest in her work. On the 25th of October, uh, Sylvia Plath writes to Warren and Maggie Plath of how delighted she is that A. Alvarez, the opinion ma uh, maker in poetry over here, will be devoting his afternoon to hearing her read her new poems. And that Alvarez says uh, she is the first uh, uh, woman poet he has taken seriously since Emily Dickinson. Uh, f f uh, even from him, that's, so he actually really liked Marion Moore, so it, it's, I'm not sure... Uh, 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 so it doesn't, even allowing for the sexism, it doesn't quite stack up, but there we go. Um, that, uh, that same day, she was writing to her mother, accusing her of shying away from the hardest things, citing Hiroshima, the Inquisition, and Belson as examples. The 25th of October is also the day Plath wrote the tour. If ever there were a poem tilting at the gentility principle, it is this address to that perennial symbol of genteel respectability, the maiden aunt. Uh, from late September 1962 on, Plath becomes not merely less genteel than the English movement norm, but is gentility's noisy adversary. Almost directly after her return from the London meeting with Alvarez, there are tits on mermaids in The Courage of Shutting Up, which is dated the 2nd of October. These paradoxically may owe something to Philip Larkin and the figurehead with golden tits in Next, Please. However, Soon comes the very unlarkinish use of language and ungenteel subject matter of such poems as Lesbos, which deliberately overturned domesticity into viciousness and squalor. There is also an increased violence of tone and imagery. More particularly, there is the link forged between facing an uncomfortable range of personal emotions and dealing with mass horror. There are no poems which answer the call of beyond the gentility principle more overtly than the two with which Alvarez chose to begin Plath's selection in the revised version of the new poetry, Lady Lazarus and Daddy. The personal demons, the primitive psychological drives which might parallel and be connected to modern mass traumas, in particular the Holocaust, are there, as is the strong, unfettered voice confronting not just that trauma, but also the reader, as it gives its harrowing performance. Indeed, the close of Daddy pushes the spirit of beyond the gentility principle to its furthest conclusion. In Plath's use of the word bastard uh, in Daddy, you bastard, I'm through, to unfather her father as she unfathers herself, and in the way it follows Alvarez's belief that insofar as violence and psychology are concerned, makers of horror films are more in tune with contemporary anxiety than most of the English poets. So by the time of the poem's vampire ending, the genuine horror of the earlier poem is teetering on the edge of black comedy, an exhilaration at having gone so far beyond good taste and proportion, so far beyond gentility. When commenting on Plath's poetry at one of their uh, uh, meetings, Alvarez singled out Ariel for particular praise, calling it the best thing she had done. A few days later, he writes, she sent him a copy of it, carefully written out in her heavy, rounded uh, script and illuminated like a medieval manuscript with flowers and ornamental squiggles. The fair uh, uh, copy of the poem in the Alvarez archive of the British Museum 
looks, to me anyway, less like a medieval manuscript than a prize piece of schoolwork written to impress a favourite teacher. Um, Alvarez was to comment on Ariel, you are made to feel the horse's physical presence but not to see it. The detail is all inward. It is as though the horse itself were an emotional state. It is about what happens when the potential violence of the animal is unleashed and also the violence of the rider. Alvarez's appraisal is of a curiously substanceless poem, as close to abstract expressionist art as words are likely to be. It has captured the violence of the poet as well as that of the animal. It is all speed, risk, and daring. As well as being what would generally appeal to Alvarez, Ariel answers his taste rather more specifically. Heather Clark notes the similarity between Plath's evocation of horses and two poems in Ted Hughes's The Hawk in the Rain, Horses and Phytons. She does not, however, mention a horse poem from Lupercal, uh, Ted Hughes's uh, uh, volume Lupercal, which had recently come out, uh, which has quite as many, if not more, correspondences with Ariel and other later poems. The, um, the poem uh, Alvarez singles out for appreciative analysis in Beyond the Gentility Principle, A Dream of Horses. Both poems are about horses and the riding of them, capturing the dawn hour and the speed of the horses. They share details, the repeated emphasis upon the horse's eyes, the suicidal way we longed for a death trampled by such horses. Both poems, too, have an apocalyptic ending. Hughes's closes, If but doomsday's flames be great horses, the forever itself a, a, a circling of the hooves of horses. Given the couple's disintegrating marriage and the fact that Plath had only recently found her full voice as a poet, one might have expected a straightforward rejection of Hughes' aesthetic. But Ariel, which appears to have mixed Plath's apparently rather sedate uh, regular horse riding with an incident involving a runaway horse while she was at Cambridge, takes on and outstrips qualities admired in Hughes's poem. According to Beyond the Gentility Principle, Hughes's horses are more urgent, violent, more impending in their presence than those in Larkins at Grass. Hughes gives us vital, sharp details. The horses reach back as in a dream to a nexus of fear and sensation. Their brute world is part physical, part state of mind. Still, if the race between the two poems has a winner, that winner is by no means clear. Larkins' poem is more skillful. Hughes's is, by his own standards, not all that good. Not only do some of the trappings verge on the pretentious, it is also less controlled than Larkin's. Alvarez's ideal poem would provide the virtu uh, with, uh, uh, virtues of the two. And this is what Plath offers in Ariel. A dream of horses... Um, sorry. ..may come across as powerful and sp speedy when compared to at grass... In comparison with Ariel, it is, like the other po uh, uh, horse poem cited by Heather Clark, more passive. Plath's is a poem of fully awake morning, Hughes's is but a dream, dreamt of by those who sleep still and who only talk about what horses ail. 
Plath, to use Alvarez's description of Hughes, has responded with a poem which is unquestionably about something. It is a serious attempt to recreate and so clarify, unfalsified and in the strongest imaginative terms possible, a powerful complex of emotions and sensations. That's all Alvarez. She has taken the very poem Alvarez used to show the direction in which he would like poetry to go, divested it of quasi-medieval trappings and pretentiousness and made it more controlled. No doubt Plath's thought processes were not as calculating as this account makes them sound. Good poems are unlikely to be the result of coldly figuring out what will please an editor. Nevertheless, the fact that this poem was written two days after the letter to her mother that enthused over meeting Alvarez again, a letter full of the message of beyond the gentility principle, and indeed on the verge of spending the afternoon with Alvarez to read him new poems, does indicate that such factors help shape the poem even if at no more than a subconscious level. Ariel is one of the great rivalrous poems of an extremely rivalrous age. So in a way, she's doing what Porter's doing with Gunn. You write, you write a poem in competition. Um, less than a week after Plath's death, Alvarez was using the Observer to make very high claims for her poetry. And he was to write and broadcast on, uh, 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 on her frequently. He's argued for... Uh, and uh, arguing for her virtues and doing a lot to make her reputation. Uh, had it not been up Alvarez, it, it would have been a, her reputation would have taken a lot longer to establish itself. He it was um, very frequent and passionate advocate. Um, but if it was Plath's work that best justified Alvarez's advocacy um, of a way of writing and its possibilities, her suicide could appear to signify their dangers. How the excellence of the former does or does not uh, connect to the tragedy of the latter exercise critics from the moment uh, 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 of Plath's death uh, and from the moment that her last poems became known and well before the Plath biography industry, itself, uh, which itself was inaugurated by Alvarez's portrait of her in his 1971 study of suicide, The Savage God. In his BBC tribute to Plath, later published as an essay in Ian Hamilton's review, Alvarez was the first critic to assess Plath, Plath properly, and his judgments remain defining um, and still very interesting to read. Still, the end of the essay is one to cause qualms. The achievement of her final style is to make poetry and death inseparable. The poems read as though they were written posthumously. It need, needed not only great intelligence and insight to handle the material of them, it also took a kind of bravery. Poetry of this or, uh, order is a murderous art. What can such a statement mean? If the poems are inseparable from the suicide of their poet, is uh, suicide not cowardice, does it, is sometimes portrayed, but bravery? And does the poetry partake of that bravery? Is one sort of seriousness that of artistic intent vouchsafed by the series of another sort, uh, uh, sort of intent, that of suicide, thereby proving that the suffer, uh, uh, suffering and death obsession in the poetry are not mere talk, but seriously meant. Edward Lucy Smith, um, evidently reckoning that just such formulations uh, lurked uh, behind Alvarez's words, was early to respond. I thought the phrase embarrassing when I first heard it. I find it no less embarrassing now. With Alvarez, we feel that the true poet must certify his poems by dying for them. Orpheus torn to pieces in a ritual sacrifice. Returning to the group's belief in the dramatic rather than its interest in uh, the poetry of the personal, Lucy Smith unpicks Alvarez and Plath's uh, connection between powerful emotion 
and direct autobiographical expression. Um, Lucy Smith's authority being not dumb but Shakespeare. There is no lack of basic emotions in Lear, but few people will be bold enough to claim that Lear reflects uh, Shakespeare's private circumstances in detail. Uh, with this, Smith, Lucy Smith uh, scores a double hit uh, because uh, Lowell, Robert Lowell had recently said, other things being equal, it's better to get your emotions out in a Macbeth than in a confession. Uh, which is, suggests that Lowell himself, who of course is uh, the great example for, for these people, isn't um, quite sure about confessionalism at, at this time. So um, scorning ossified romantic attitudes and a cult of suicide suited to the age of uh, Verta, uh, uh, Verta, uh, Lucy Smith ridicules the narcissism and exhibition in the desire to walk naked, uh, slightly changing the scenario. The poet is rather like the showgirl in a glossy theatrical entertainment, whom the law allows uh, uh, to appear in the stage more or less stark naked on the sole condition she doesn't move a muscle. Uh, and then Lucy Smith then uh, asserts the value of social poetry in a poetry of history. Um, such criticism must, must have stung Alvarez, for when Alvarez collected the essay that Lucy Smith's commenting on, he um, had, had, had a prefatory note to it, and in it he states that breakdown or suicide is not a validation of what I now call extremist poetry. He denies the necessary connection between extreme art and extreme life, uh, or the idea that the suffered life validates the art. Nevertheless, he states that he did mean to imply that this kind of writing involves an element of risk. The extremist art sets out deliberately to explore the roots of his emotions, the obscurest uh, springs of his personality, for the sake of the range and intensity of his art. So Alvarez, who was originally very controversial for espousing, espousing violence, has now become controversial for espousing suicide. Um, here are Alvarez reverting to the language of obscurity rather uh, than that of clarification doubles back. Sylvia Plath's source of creative energy was her self-destructiveness, but it was a source of living energy, imaginative and creative power. To account for Plath, Alvarez has made a change uh, to the current critical formulae. The life and energy in poetry valued by the criticism of Levis and his followers has become equated with suicidal urge. Alvarez goes on, death itself may have been a side issue, it was also an unavoidable risk in writing her kind of poem. My own impression of the circumstances surrounding her eventual death is that she gambled, not caring much whether she won or lost, and she lost. Had she lived, the poetry would still be valid. But these statements and statement like, like, statements like them are, of course, highly questionable and highly problematic. Yet they are problematic in part not because they avoid a very thorny problem, but because they attempt to grasp it. Plath's late poems are good in a way which is patently unsuited to the uh, uh, established use of approbatory terms of life, health, and vitality. Moreover, while other writers have committed suicide, that fact will often not seem especially relevant when reviewing their best work. To maintain such lack of relevance in the case of Plath um, is trickier to argue, though there, there are... Anyhow, Alvarez and how uh, poets in England were going to deal with such a presentation uh, of poetry uh, was going to be controversial, and that's what I talk about in the later chapters of the book. But rather than getting into that, what I'd like to do now is to take any questions and have a brief discussion before we close. Thank you.
yes, a, a, any questions? Um, just, uh, I don't know if it's particularly relevant, mm. but was Alvarez ever aware of the reordering of aerial by Ted Hughes? Uh, I think he became hopeful. I think it's a very important point that some of his arguments mm. indicated to me that he didn't know. Mm. Um, because, uh, uh, I mean, obviously, he became aware uh, as, as we, we all, all did. But uh, it's also the case that when Hughes is um, talking about Ariel, he says, "Well, it ends in spring." It was actually a curative book, and the uh, and the, uh, the the problem is Plath, the novel writer, not Plath, the poet, and that, and that's that's what's what's causing the problem. And yeah, yes, I, he writes about them as if they're all the same time and they're all leading up to the death, whereas actually, uh, and I think he gets it wrong, in, I, I, I think this is completely right, though, I think that Plath in October isn't actually that suicidal, uh, but, but, I, I, and, but he thinks she is. The way he writes about it does seem to, he, he, all in, so, yes, I think, I think it's a misreading, but, and I think it's partly because of Alvarez that we've been saying it for so long. Because, uh, because he does seem to elide everything. Especially he talks about Sylvia gambling eh, as well. To what extent is he actually projecting his own sort of particular psycho? Oh, massively. He was a great gambler. He, he, he's, 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 yeah, sorry. I, 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 sorry, this is uh, on Alvarez and gambling. Well, of course, he was a great gambler and he was a great rock climber. And he does... He does bring those. He brings those in. It is yes, it's deeply questionable when he's talk, talking about that. How much he's projecting? I don't. I'm, I suspect she might have talked a bit like that when she was talking to Al Alvarez because we. Uh, he was an influential editor, and we all. Uh, we, we we often reflect the people we're talking to, but I don't uh, see little evidence that she thought uh, thought of poetry in terms of rock climbing and gambling. Uh, uh, other times, and certainly not suicide. I, I think that's 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 him. Uh, so yes, there are, there, it's very prob problem problematic. Which doesn't mean that there there aren't valuable things there. But yes, there's there's nothing here, whether it's about violence or about suicide, that, that, that is, doesn't throw up all, all sorts of problems. Yeah. Uh, any other questions? Yeah. Interesting that focused on that such confessional poetry of Platt was sort of harmful. But people also talk about poetry having a curative power. I'm just wondering, what's, what are your thoughts on um, is, what extent is poetry curative, curative and in what, what a sense is it actually destructive to the psyche? What, what, what's the, what do you think the relationship is there? I think both are hugely overrated, <laughs> both, 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 both cases. Um, um, I, this was, I think, I mean, for Alvarez, it's solving the mystery of Plath's suicide, partly for him. And so there are all sorts of personal reasons. But someone said that, I think it was Charles Bernstein, the American poet, he said, because there were all these healthy poetry now, that it's always poems for life and poems made for He said, I want a really unhealthy poetry. And Part, part of me, having had so much healthy poetry lately, I, I quite like the incredible sort of values of being unhealthy. But you know, to be honest, good poetry is good poetry, whether it's 
whether it's going to uh, lift, lift you up or, or depress you. I, I always get annoyed because people on the other side say, um, well, will say that poetry that consoles you must be, there's a certain lot of critics who say that must be bad poetry, or, or poetry which makes you interested, and that must be bad poetry. But if it's well done, it's well, if it's well done, it's well, it's well done. So that's my not very, uh, not very committed <laughs> view, view on that. But I don't see why poetry should be healthy or unhealthy. It's just poetry. <laughs> Well, not not a lot. There's there's interesting. There's a woman in the group. To be fair, who um, Peter Porter, uh, who's, who's really rated and I think Anne, Anne Owen, but she never published. I've seen her poems and manuscripts, and she was she was quite good, but she didn't. Um, whether uh, whether that was uh, how much that was internal or external, I'm not. I, I, I'm not sure. But um, and of course, in the previous generation, you've got um, Elizabeth Jennings. I mean, Jen Joseph is the same generation, but she's got nothing to do with these people really. But she, uh, she was, I think, she's at Oxford. I think it was at the same time. Uh, so I mean, there there are there are women poets around, but I th um, it tended to be. And also, one of the problems is I think it's less hospitable to women in a way than the movement was, because the movement isn't doing all this macho strutting, which Gunn and Hughes are doing. What's interesting is that sort of Plath becomes Farvara's top poet and takes on this rather very masculinist discourse and. Uh, Goes ahead of it, so so that's one of the slight contradictions here. That the defining poet for Alvarez becomes Sylvia Plath, and yet it's so masculine as what what's being said. Uh, uh, there are different uh, answers to why it comes, but partly just because the poetry was so good. That's certainly what he would say. I think. Thank you very much, William. That was really interesting. Um, we have a special gift from Library Poetry Festival to you. Um, every year we commission a local artisan to create something so that's thank for you. you thank you um, very much thank you very much and um yes thank you